0: The passage for this morning is from John chapter 18. We'll be reading verses 33 to 37. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Lori. Good morning, Arcadia. How y'all doing? All right. Good to hear. A um, couple other quick announcements. By the way, if you're new, my name is Frank. Glad to see you. Welcome. We're glad you're here. A couple other quick announcements. I uh, just want to remind you that Uh, If you would like to uh, attend, we're having a little meet and greet uh, uh, starting around 12.15 after the second service today, maybe 12.30. We're having a little meet and greet for the four elder candidates. So that would be Jim, Steve, Josh, and Cody. So um, we'll also have a little bit of food from Postino's here for that as well. So uh, if you'd like to come back after the second service and do that and be able to meet and talk uh, to the elder candidates, that would be great. And then the other thing I want to remind you of, I would really appreciate it if you would be here next Sunday, uh, the 14th, because that is the Sunday that we are going to be uh, commissioning and sending out the Peoria plant. Sean Myers is going to be uh, preaching the message that day, and we're going to bring everybody, the entire core team uh, from Peoria up front, and we're going to pray for them and commission them and send them out. So that would be a pretty exciting day, and so we would love for you to be a part of that as well. So. Let's dive in. If you haven't already, eventually I will get to, well, actually sooner than eventually, I will get to John chapter 18. Uh, We're gonna be looking at that and one other passage this morning and then a hymn as well. We're gonna close with that. But we're in the second week of our series on Advent. And we talked last week, we introduced all of this. We talked last week about Um, How Advent literally means arrival or coming and that Jesus, if you want to take that noun and turn it into a verb, Jesus advented once and we look back to that, that's Christmas, Uh, but we also know that he is going to Advent again. And so the Advent season is really more about looking forward to his second coming, his second Advent, than really looking back. We will look back, of course, especially on Christmas Eve, but primarily the Advent season is about waiting and hoping and prayerfully expecting the arrival of the king of the kingdom of God. And, and the series title is The King is Coming. And, and I mentioned last week that if you wanted to have a passage that was sort of like the big idea for the entire series, it's Hebrews chapter 9. Let me read it to you again. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Some people have called that the Schlitz verse. If you're old enough to remember Schlitz beer, you only go around once in life, all right? Okay, a couple of year old, never mind. All right, so anyway, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, his first advent was was to come and atone for sin, to make the payment for sin, to give us forgiveness for sins. He will appear a second time, but not to deal with sin, But rather this time it is to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so that's the big idea of the entire series. The big idea today is that he is the king of the kingdom. The king of the kingdom is Jesus. His is the kingdom. You you look at Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is talking to everybody and he's saying, look at the way people are trying to connect to all of these other things and find their fulfillment. And then he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, seek the kingdom, but you seek it through him, the king of the kingdom, through his righteousness. And then all of these other things will be added unto you. You will find connection. You will find fulfillment if you would just get your priorities straight. If you would exalt the king of the kingdom into his rightful place. And then he says, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious enough for itself. I- I- in other words, all this anxiety that you're living, uh, the idea that we want to live in peace um, and, and so we pursue all of these things in order to give us peace is a bogus idea. He's saying that the place of peace, the place where we deal with our anxiety is in the king and in the kingdom and in his righteousness. So today we're going to talk about how Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. Like I said, a couple passages today and then we'll close. I want to talk about a great old hymn uh, that I think really exalts Christ in, in an appropriate way. We actually sang or will sing. I, I wasn't in For the music, but I know it's on the docket. At some point today, we sang a version of it. So let me reread that passage that Lori just read for us and then we'll spend a little bit of time unpacking that before we move to 1 Corinthians 15. This is essentially the Roman side of the trial of Jesus. Jesus has already been in front of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, and had his trial with them, which, which was a, a goofy trial because the Sanhedrin came in with a verdict. They didn't really care about evidence or having a discussion. They came into this thing with a verdict and they immediately condemned him. to They said, y- you're done. We're condemning you to death, but before they could actually execute him, they had to send him to the Roman governor in order for him to sign off on the execution. That's the only way they could do it uh, legally. And so now this is the conversation that Pilate has with Jesus. And this conversation is f- Fascinating. I'm only going to spend 10 or 12 minutes on it. I would love to spend 40 on it, but th- there there's so many nuances here and so many ironies. But this is what happens in these five short verses. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? In other words, listen, this doesn't make sense that you're the king of the Jews and your own people have delivered you in. I'm not so sure I understand what's going on here. So why don't you help me understand and explain this? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom... Were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, "'So you are a king.'" And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And the implication there is, hey, Pilate, if you knew what was good for you, you would also listen to my voice. You would, you would look at, you, you'd do what you're doing. You would investigate this craziness and you would begin to understand who I really am. So as I said, this is the trial, essentially, of Jesus in the Roman court. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, they had a verdict and they were just looking for a court to affirm that verdict and allow them to do what they... Have you ever had that happen to you, by the way? Maybe not necessarily in a real court of law, but maybe at work, some people have made a verdict about you and they're just looking for somebody to affirm that verdict, right? We've all had that happen to us before. Well, this is happening to Jesus for real and it's interesting because this conversation between Jesus and Pilate gives us so much insight into the kingdom of God and who is the king of that kingdom which would be Jesus and like I said verses 33 and 34 expose the strategy of the Sanhedrin to get Pilate to sign off on this execution they tell Pilate that Jesus claims to be a king it doesn't matter necessarily that he's king of the Jews but but they although they did say that but really it's just any any time in the Roman in the Roman Empire you said oh somebody thinks they're a king that's going to be a problem that is an act in the roman empire that is seen as an act of sedition an act of rebellion an act that is deriding to the sitting roman governor and caesar Pilate is the Roman governor over this area of the Roman Empire. He ultimately answers to Caesar. Nevertheless, he's in charge. He's the governor. He's the tetrarch. He's in charge of this area. But whether it's a threat to him or to Caesar, he has to sniff out every possible one of these little threats. There are no other kings allowed in the Roman Empire, and they're very, very hard about that. But it's obvious that Pilate is suspicious of this entire process. So he asked Jesus straight up. And and, and this is interesting to me because you have to understand, he's the governor, he's the tetra. Pilate's a busy guy. He really doesn't necessarily have time for this Ordinarily, what he would do is he heard the word king. Somebody claimed to be king. He would get out the rubber stamp and say, yes, execute him, take care of this. That'll let all those other would-be junior kings out there know that they're gonna get killed as well. It's just a rubber stamp, but he takes his time. He's a busy, and even if he's not busy, he's gonna wanna get to his jacuzzi and do his wine and all of that other stuff. He, doesn't have, he took the time, though, to deal with this. And so he asked him straight up, do you claim to be king of the Jews? Pilate is actually engaging in something that you and I call due process in a time that due process wasn't known and wasn't necessary. There there was no court-appointed defense attorney there representing Jesus. There There were no civil rights attorneys there wondering if Jesus' civil rights had been violated. Pilate did not have to do any of this. This is part of what makes this passage so interesting. And then Jesus answers him. And Jesus' answer demonstrates two really interesting things about Jesus. Number one, it demonstrates that Jesus has this amazing ability, unlike many of us, to be able to make a point without getting worked up about it. Jesus always remains really calm, okay? And then the second thing that it, it shows that Jesus is really good at, which we all love. You read through the Gospels and you see that this is true. Jesus is exceptional at answering the question that should have been asked, not the question that was asked. And so his answer isn't exactly online with what, with what um, Pilate is asking, but Jesus gets his point across. He said, listen, you need to understand, if I really were a kingdom, if I really were a king in this world, notice he says that. If I were a king in this world, in other words, if I were a king under your systems and your values and your expectations, my guys would have acted like they were part of that kind of a kingdom. They would have thrown down when they came to get me. They would have fought, but they're not fighting. We aren't fighting. I'm not fighting. So can't you look at that, Pilate, and see that your instincts are right? There's something wrong here. There's something going on that isn't correct. There's a mistake. And then Jesus makes it very clear. As a matter of fact, I do have a kingdom, but it's not of this world. You see, it's a kingdom, Pilate, that doesn't doesn't need to be supported with physical force or systems designed to mitigate and control human sin, because guess what? I'm the answer to sin. I'm the answer. All these other ways that you're trying to figure out how how to answer for the brokenness of the world, it's me. I am the truth. I'm the one who has come to bear witness to how this world is supposed to really work. And Pilate, of course, says, so you are a king? He says, yes, yes, I am, but not a kingdom that operates under any system or values that you have any concept of, though you should be. You should be aware of what's going on here. You see, what he's saying is, is he's saying, listen, Pilate, you, you kind of have this little kingdom here, but your kingdom is temporary, mine is eternal. Your, your kingdom is a threat. You know, people hear that Pilate's upset or Caesar's upset, and that threatens them. My kingdom's not a threat. My kingdom is a community. Your kingdom is rooted in sin, but my, my kingdom is rooted in truth and grace. There's a huge difference between these kingdoms. You see, the worldly kingdoms that you and I engage in and, and swim in and live under, I- I- including that kingdom of Rome, by the way, which by some historian accounts, the Roman kingdom lasted 800 years. That's a long time, but you need to understand that even 800 years within the, uh, the big picture of eternity is just a blip on the screen. These worldly kingdoms that we put our trust and faith in and we put our hope in and we think are gonna fix everything and we think this kingdom's gonna be better than that kingdom and the Democrat kingdom is better than the Republican kingdom. But no, the Libertarian kingdom is really the one that needs to get traction. But how about the Independent kingdom or maybe just the kingdom of me, our favorite kingdom? Those kingdoms are all temporal. They're fleeting They use intimidation and they can be violent and they're motivated. Clearly, they're motivated by selfishness and there's sin mixed in and corruption and power and they use force to support their reign. The Jesus' kingdom, the one that he reigns in is all about grace and truth and community and love and justice and joy and freedom and righteousness and life. And here's a a really simple, this is just getting right down to bare basics, a very simple way to understand it. What? What does every kingdom need? Every kingdom must have this one element. A king. It's not a trick question. Every kingdom has to have a king and generally that kingdom is gonna take on the characteristics and attributes of that king. And so the kingdom of God is gonna be one that's loving and graceful and forgiving. It's a gospel-centered king. And by the way, let's get, I already got personal a little bit. I wanna drive home this point of personalizing these kingdoms. Our favorite worldly kingdom. You and I, every one of us in this room, our favorite worldly kingdom to seek and to build is our kingdom, the kingdom of me. We'll use the systems and the values and the structures of our culture and of our country and whatever it is. We'll use that in order to help build other kingdoms, but ultimately those kingdoms are about what's best for us, the kingdom of And one of the biggest challenges in life is that you and I, really, at our core, you and I would rather Jesus sought our kingdom rather than us seeking his kingdom. That's why he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Get your priorities straight, he's saying. It's so simple and yet it's so counterintuitive. It's counter to our spirit because our spirit's been corrupted by sin. And so we walk around and we sing our favorite hymns. Instead of How Great Thou Art, we sing How Great I Art. Maybe not out loud, but you're singing it. Instead of, instead of singing have, have Thine Own Way, Lord, we sing Have Mine Own Way, Lord. Wouldn't you rather have my way, Lord? Haven't I got this stuff figured out? I'm down here in the weeds, God. You're just up there at 30,000 feet. Let me take care of this for you. You see, one of Pilate's greatest concerns that he had to make sure that he was aware of was that his kingdom might be threatened. And let's get this straight. I mentioned this already in theory, but here's the practical application of it. It's not necessarily that Pilate was world worried that the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome was necessarily gonna be threatened. What he was really worried about was that his kingdom was being threatened. The, the fact that he's the governor, that he's the tetrarch, affords him benefits and privileges that he wouldn't have otherwise, that he wouldn't have if he wasn't the the governor. And so he's worried about whether or not Jesus is seeking his power and his influence and his position. That's what he's worried about and that's why he really needed to, to drill down on this. And that's our problem too. This is our problem as well. We've been talking about how, well, we've been talking, one week we talked about it, last week we talked about it, how the second coming, the second advent of Christ, it creates a lot of anxiety for people. Why is that? Why are so many people really not at peace with the second coming of Jesus? Well, one of the biggest reasons we're anxious about Jesus coming again is that we know that his kingdom is going to oust our kingdom. We know his kingdom is gonna prevail and we're not so sure that we're excited about that. We kind of like the way we've ordered our kingdom, no matter how temporary it is. You and I need to see this as good news though. I, just this one, I could List all the reasons why this would be good news. But here's just one little reason why this might be good news. Wouldn't it be nice if you and I didn't have to pretend or act like we're in charge of anything anymore? I gotta get at least one amen for that. I mean, good grief. How much relief would that bring? It's all yours, Jesus. You can have it, man. I've been waiting for a long time for this moment, okay? I call it the glorious overthrow of me. And some of you are going, yeah, yeah, the glorious overthrow of Frank. No, no, no. It's the glorious overthrow of you too. That's right. It's the glorious overthrow of all of us. That is good news. The desire for his kingdom should be what's in our heart, not the desire for our kingdom. And it's not just knowing about the kingdom. It's getting it that 12 or 18 or 14 inches, whatever, into your heart to have that desire for his kingdom. All right, flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. This just kind of helps finish off this whole idea that he is the king of the kingdom, although there's many other passages we could look at. This helps us as well. So this is the passage. This is um, the resurrection passage, the gospel passage or chapter in in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. And this particular, uh, these uh, nine verses here, 20 through 28, are really talking about the importance of the resurrection, and, and why that makes him the Lord and why that finishes everything off and why we can place our trust and our hope and our faith in that particular connection for genuine fulfillment. So Paul writes this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He, he has been resurrected and he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I'll talk a little bit about first fruits, what that means. For as by a man came death, By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under under him that God may be all in all. So that idea of first fruits, you see it a couple times in that passage, including the first verse, 20. It's an agricultural term that, that refers to the, the very first sampling of a big, of a very large crop that's to come. It's like, okay, here's a little preview. Here's a picture of the nature and quality of this beautiful crop that is coming. In other words, Christ's resurrection and his body is going to be what ours are. We're going to be resurrected as well, and we're going to be given a new body. Some of us can't wait for that. Some of us are trying to rebuild our body now. You're going to get a perfect body at the resurrection and then verses 22 and 23 that's Romans 5 baby I mean remember about a year ago when we went through Romans 5 that's that's the message of Romans 5 that that all sinners all are sinners and suffer because of because of Adam we 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 experience death because of Adam he's the one who's responsible for that but also all who are in Christ all who are in Christ Paul's very clear about this in verse 24. All who are in Christ are justified and will be resurrected. So understand, if all were justified uh, regardless of Christ or outside of Christ or, or irrespective of Christ, then you wouldn't even have verses 24 through 27 in this passage. There would be no need for those verses. And verse 23 tells us that when Christ advents again, all who are in him will receive the body just like his. Never again, never again to experience aging or weakness or illness or pain or acne or anything like that. Somebody said amen to that, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then verses 24 through 27, Jesus is the king. All enemies will be destroyed and put under his feet. But again, the problem is, the challenge is, we're not so sure this is good news because you and I, we like some of those enemies. Come on, admit it. We like some of those enemies. All of us have our favorite go-to sin. That's an enemy of Christ, but we like that one. We wouldn't keep going to it if we didn't. That there are certain attitudes that we have, that we display, that we manifest, that, that though unhealthy, we, we continue to lean into those attitudes. And we're not sure that we want to give up the ability to go to that attitude now we're okay with that death one we see oh death will be oh good we're good that death will be put under that's a good enemy to put under his feet we're not so not entirely sure about the rest of those we'll, again we'll talk more about that and then verse 28 says that this will happen so that god may be all in all this is kingship talk my fellow arcadians kingship talk it's it's about the lordship of god in jesus christ Th- this is not pantheism it's not that everything is God, it's that God is over all. He is the creator and sustainer and nurturer and, and recreator of all things. So you just let me move down this, this path for a minute. In in creation, in what we would call the created order, if you read Genesis 1 and 2. Within that created order, understand. You and I as human beings, Adam and Eve, we were given dominion, we were given lordship, literally, under God's lordship. Well, then that's not real lordship. No, 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 no. You don't understand. God created this whole thing for us. Gave us all of these resources. It was a magnificent gift that he gave us and he said, you're in charge of it all. Under, under my tutelage, under my lordship, in relationship with me, nevertheless, I give you dominion. I give you stewardship. I entrust it all to you. Now go and flourish and have a good life and create culture and do all of these good things. You are lords under my lordship. That was a great deal. And what happened? You saw, the, you saw the video last week. Remember that? We said, eh, even with all of that, we're not so sure that we don't want to be on your throne. And so Adam, of course, told God, I'm number one in his way. Verse 24 says that the true king is, is gonna put an end to all of that stuff because what Adam did broke the world. That's why the world is broken. That's why you and I are broken. That's why we, gosh, we look around at all of this stuff. Isn't it obvious that the world is broken? We're we're fretting and upset about Ferguson. We're fretting and upset about what's going on in the Middle East. We're fretting and upset about what's going on in our own homeowners association, for crying out loud. We can't get away from this stuff and this is why the world is broken because we removed the true king. We removed the king who knew what was best for us because we thought what was best. So verse 24 reminds us He's going to put an end to all of this stuff that you and I seek connection in and seek fulfillment in and, and, and think that, that it's going to change the way this broken world operates. We put our faith in these systems, in these ideas, and, and in these cultures. And, and we even, some of us even, gosh, we, God, we, we go down this road too. It's, it's, it's like there are people like, oh, Jesus, don't come right now. It's going to ruin what I got going on right now. It's going to ruin my life if you come now. I'm at I'm Preaching Collective two weeks ago. Ricardo, the pastor of Tempe, he said I could say this. Okay, so y'all go tweet him and tell him I said it. All right. Ricardo says Ricardo was a great football player. If you don't know, he played four years, started four years Division One football for ASU. He's a good football player in high school. His high school team was playing the state championship game. And on the eve of that state championship game, so the night before that state championship game, Ricardo said he actually prayed that Jesus wouldn't come back before that game. <laughs> don't, don't come now. I really want to play this game, Jesus. Don't come now, okay? This is, this is every man's prayer on his wedding day. Jesus, give me 36, maybe 72 hours, then we're good, okay? Okay. Hey, let me tell you something. Here you go. I'll make this real personal again, all right? If I hear that Francis Ford Coppola and the boys are getting together and they're talking about a Godfather 4 project, Jesus, please, wait. Don't you want to know what happens to the family, Jesus? This is good stuff. Then you can come. Let me see the premiere and then we're good, okay? No, Jesus isn't going to ruin it. That's just goofiness. Jesus' coming will make life what it was always intended to. To be. It's not gonna, he's not going to ruin it. He's going to make it. He, he's going to open our eyes again in a different way than the way Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. He's going to open our eyes to something that is magnificent and unimaginable to us right now. It's going to be awesome. And that is our hope. That's what we place our hope in. I, I get up very early most mornings and, and go out sometimes and run. And, as, and and especially like in August and September when we have monsoon season, um, that allows me to see some of the destruction that the monsoons have before anybody really gets there and does anything about it. And on occasion, I have seen power lines that have come down. And when they come down, they're sparking. Well, I've been told that that sparking of the power line is the power line looking for its true connection. Looking for its true fulfillment. But everywhere it, it tries to connect with something, it sparks. And guess what? It's dangerous. When, when the, the APS or, or, or SRP guys get there, what do they do? They build a barricade around that. They don't let any traffic go down. That's dangerous over there. It's dangerous when people are seeking their fulfillment and their connection in the wrong things. Sparks happen, and the spark might be fun and exciting for a moment, but then there's just devastation in the wake of that, and yet we keep trying. We keep saying, no, Jesus, it's not gonna be your way. It's going to be my way. These are idols. Bible calls, the Bible calls them idols. They're false gods, and we need to understand that false gods never fail to fail us. Every time we place our faith, hope, and trust in a false god, it will fail us. And verse 24 says those are the things that are gonna be destroyed. Those things that ultimately disappoint us, they're gonna be put under his feet and destroyed. Things like power, You know, we don't say it out loud, but so many of us think if we just had more power, our life would be better. I'm gonna reference a couple of television shows which will frustrate a couple of you, but that's okay because they do mimic real life. Kevin Spacey in that show, House of Cards, it was I believe in the first episode, of that show when Kevin Spacey said, I don't understand all these people who are obsessed about getting a lot of money. That's not the key to life. The key to life is power. If you get power, you can get money, but money doesn't necessarily bring you power. So I'm all about the power. And yet Kevin Spacey, well, his character, Kevin Spacey too, they're eventually gonna die and they're not gonna have any power. One of the greatest frustrations of presidents who have been president for so long is that they don't have the same power that they used to it's very frustrating for them if you've read the books and the articles about it, it's very very frustrating so there's power there's authority we want authority and we think authority can come with position and we think that when we get the right position we have authority then we can get people to submit to us and we think that'll fulfill us somehow and then there there are people who seek money as the god of their if i can just accumulate enough money there's even been books written about you know that book about what's your number What's your number in terms of money that you need to be able to live the rest of your life without ever having to work again? And by the way, the number is way higher than any of us think it is. So let's just pull up, pull up uh, let's just say I'm 55. Let's say my number in reality is 20 mil, okay? And that's just to live a modest, um, Arcadia-lite lifestyle, all right? It's $20 million, do you understand that $20 million or $200 million is not gonna stop the inevitable? I'm still going to die, and I'm still going to have to answer to God. Do you understand that? You get that? Okay. Hey, here's the thing. You will eventually outsick your money. You will. I don't need Obamacare. I don't need the affordable health care plan. I got $200 million. I can go anywhere I want. Well, guess what? Anywhere you want is eventually going to say, there's no cure. You're done. Ugh. Maybe that Jesus thing is looking pretty good now eventually these false gods are gonna fail you. There's, there's the idea of sex outside the created order design for sex. We, we, we do that. Here you go. Here's another one. This is a big one. And I'm gonna ram on this for a little while. It's this idea, I, I just wanna have a sense of significance. I just wanna be Significant. And and so we we run around doing all these things that we think will bring us significance and bring us a reputation and bring us credibility. And and, and there's nothing wrong with causes, but have you ever met anybody who takes on the identity of the cause? And pretty soon you're done talking to them at parties because that's all they ever want to talk about. And it's like, man, your salvation is not in that cause. Just go and do some good things and be quiet about it. That's what, here you go, another television show. Okay, r- write your emails. I'm a Breaking Bad guy, okay? I watch Breaking Bad. All right, yeah. All right, I got some amens there. Let me tell you, it's one of the most theological shows I've ever seen. And in, <laughs> pastor making an excuse. All right, so in season five, season five, so here, here if, you, if, you don't know, if you've never watched this, the show, you'll get what I'm, the point I'm trying to make. It, it's not, it, you're not gonna miss this, okay? Here's the point. This guy, Walter White, who's just a high school chemistry teacher, he needs a lot of money. And so he finds this kid, Jesse, and they partner up and they, de- they decide they're gonna manufacture meth. And they start make- selling meth and they make quite a bit of money. But he and Jesse, their partnership is, is really tenuous and filled with lots of antipathy. And by season five, the last season, they're really at odds. But in season five, this opportunity comes along for them to be able to sell the main ingredient of their meth. They're not even gonna have to cook meth anymore. They don't have to make meth and distribute it. All they have to do is sell the inventory of their main ingredient to make meth and between the two of them they will get 10 million dollars, 5 million dollars apiece. And Jesse, the younger guy is going, "That's my number, man. That I read that book. That's my number, 5 million. Sell the stuff." And Walter won't sell the stuff. He won't sell it. And Jesse is absolutely frustrated by this. "Why won't you?" And he says, he says, "Didn't we get into this business to make enough money so that we didn't have to work again?" Walter didn't answer him. A couple episodes later, Walter pulls him aside and he says, I have an answer for you now. He says, in fact, you're wrong about the reason why I got into this business. I didn't get into this business to make money. I got into this business to build an empire. And that empire sucked Walter's life dry. It destroyed his family and ultimately it destroyed him. Everything that he held valuable. It was a false god building this empire and having a reputation and having significance destroyed him. It's just a television show, Frank. No, 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 you're missing the point. How many of you are trying to build some kind of empire here that you think is going to satisfy you and fulfill you in a way that only Jesus Christ can satisfy you and fulfill you? We, we, we bend into all of these things, control, comfort, whatever it is. My, mine is probably comfort if I had to admit to you. I want all of these other accoutrements of life in order that I could have comfort. I seem to think that I'll be fulfilled if I'm just comfortable. And of course, my definition of comfort is to lay on the couch watching Netflix, eating Cheetos. Yeah. <laughs> but even that gets old. <laughs> Probably sooner than I would think. And after about 17,000 bags of Cheetos, Jackie's out of there. <laughs> Let do that right now. Bruce Winter says this about this paragraph in First Corinthians 15. I think it's very helpful. He says, In so short a passage, Paul has traced paradise lost and regained, as well as the recovery of the submission of all things to God as in the beginning of creation. And it is Christ's resurrection and lordship that guarantees this. He is the king of the kingdom. His resurrection and lordship guarantees this. And one of the things that we see here is, is that Paul is talking about the proclamation of the kingdom, not the timing of the kingdom. Remember we talked last week about how you and I are so interested in the timing of the kingdom. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It's the proclamation of the kingdom, the proclamation of the gospel that we need to be all about. Many of you know that I, I work in the, in the prison system with prisoners. Here's a, a, here's a guy, I've been writing this guy for 15 years. He has a 24-year sentence he served 17 years and recently he got into a, uh, um, a, a psychiatric therapy and counseling and restoration group that is run by the department of corrections and he and he's been in it about six months and he says you know it's been mostly very good they have a lot of biblical principles although they don't realize their biblical principles and those are really good but ultimately the the downfall of this program is that they continue to remind us of our crime and that we are criminals and that we're bad people He says, that's ultimately the problem with this. And he wrote, this is an excerpt from the last letter I got from him. I got this from him three days ago. I want you to hear it because I think it's beautiful, okay? It is apparent that many of us have believed very negative things about ourselves, things which were true at one time, but no longer are. And reinforcing those negatives now seems counterproductive and even oppressive. That's what I love about the gospel and Jesus The gospel says that I'm a new creation in Christ, that contrary to what I believed about myself, I was fearfully and wonderfully made, that I have tremendous value and I'm dearly loved, that I have a new life and my past is forgotten, my future is secure in him, that it is useless for me to wallow in guilt and shame, that I am intended for so much more that I can laugh and dance and sing and rejoice in the greatness of my king. I wasn't drawn to God because of the law and sin and the threat of hell, My life was already hell. I was drawn because of love and grace and forgiveness and a new life and the realization that God knew every secret thing about me and still loved me and desired an eternal relationship with me and that's not lip service either. He proved it by dying for me. That's the gospel right there. And that's the king and that's the kingdom that he understands that he is a part of. I started by mentioning Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is the good news of the true kingdom. Void of our idols, our false kings and unfulfilling kingdoms. That's the kingdom of God. It's gonna gonna lay to rest all of those other things. And this is an invitation for you and I to submit to his kingdom and his lordship. And as a result, our needs and our desires will be met in him. He'll use what he's created to meet those needs and desires, but they'll be met in him and by him. That's the glory of God. I want to end by just walking through for five or six minutes the words from this hymn. It's the hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Wasn't it great that we used to live in a time when you could name something like a song or a movie um, what it really is instead of trying to find one pithy little word that describes it? all hail the power of Jesus' name. That's the title of this hymn. This hymn is often referred to as the Anthem of Christendom. It was written in 19, sorry, 1779, almost 250 years ago, by Edward Piranay or Piranette, depending on how you pronounce his name, while he was serving as a missionary in India. So some of you know this song, right? right? Okay, so just sing the first verse with me please because you don't want to just hear me sing so we get an idea of how the rhythm uh, goes and everything so all hail the power of jesus name let angels prostrate fall bring forth the royal diadem and crown him lord of all Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Isn't that a magnificent, exultive song? It's just fantastic. And we're, we're doing a version of it today. But listen to these words and what, it, what they mean. It, it, it's let angels prostrate fall. Let me tell you something. If angels are going to fall and bow before him, you and I need to also. And then it talks about this royal diadem. We think that's a crown. It's actually a jeweled headband that specifically signifies two things, sovereignty or power and authority. It's lordship talk. He is the king. He is the Lord. The next verse goes like this. Let highborn seraphs tune the lyre and as they tune it, fall. Here you go. This verse in this song is the all of life is all for Jesus verse. No matter what you're doing, this is Romans 12.1. Your entire life should be lived as, a, as an act of worship, a spiritual act of sacrifice to God. It's all of life is all for Jesus. So no matter what you're doing, whether you're tuning or you're thinking or you're working or you're playing or you're learning, whatever it is that you're doing, bow down to him. He's the king. All of life is all for Jesus. Before his face who tunes their choir and crown him Lord of all. Crown him, ye morning stars of light, who fix this floating ball. Even creation recognizes his lordship and his kingship. That's Romans chapter eight. Now hail the strength of Israel's might and crown him Lord of all. The strength of Israel's might comes from Jesus, even in the Old Testament. You need to understand that. It came from the Messiah. Then these next three verses, which all really tie in together. Crown him, ye martyrs of your God, whom, who from his altar call Extol the stem of Jesse's rod and crown him Lord of all. Ye seed of Israel's chosen race, ye ransom from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Hail him, ye heirs of David's line, whom David, Lord, did call the God incarnate, man divine, and crown him Lord of all. These three verses remind us of several things, but three really important things. First of all, they remind us that the Messiah came from God's chosen people and specifically from David's line and that was all part of his magnificent plan. And that brings us to the second thing, his perfect and magnificent plan. I'm so excited, I can't even say it, is grace. It's grace. The true and perfect king is one of grace. And the third thing it reminds us of is that our king joyfully submitted to the incarnation he became a man to serve us Hebrews tells us that he's the perfect high priest because he was sinless but also he's the perfect high priest for us because he's not without temptation he understands what it's like to be us he's the true king and then this verse this verse which probably few of you if any have ever heard because it usually gets cut out. These, these old hymns used to be 8, 10, 12 verses. And of course today, if you do hymns, you do three or four verses because it's just way too many to do 8, 10, or 12 verses, right? So you have to cut some out. This was one that always gets cut out. Sinners whose love can never forget the wormwood and the gall, go spread your trophies at his feet and crown him Lord of all. This may be my favorite verse. Verse. This verse reminds us of our utter fallenness, our depravity, our corruption, our sinful nature that runs around looking for fulfillment and completion in all of these other false gods and we take them as trophies and as our own crowns. We take all of this stuff you, you, you win a race and you get a medal and you go home and you hang it on and, and, and you show your wife or your husband or your family or your friends or your, you stand out in the neighborhood. We're, we got all these crowns, all these things that bring us significance and think they're going to bring us fulfillment. Every possible worldly crown and trophy, he says, you got to bring it to me and lay it at my feet because I am the true trophy. I am the true king. I am the one who has the crown. You and I are constantly looking for that shiny thing. Jesus is the truer and better shiny thing, and we have him. Then the last verse. Let every tribe and tongue before him prostrate fall and shout in universal song, the crowned Lord of all. It's a magnificent hymn that really exalts Jesus to where he deserves to be. I have a closing prayer for us, and I want us to stand while we do it. And you don't have to bow your head. Just, just read the prayer along with me as I read it to you. It'll be on the screens. This is our prayer. Lord God, I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposition. Amen.